Well, if you will take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. It wasn't too long ago that we worked through the book of Romans. A couple years ago now, I guess it was. But today we find ourselves back in Romans chapter 3. I'm going to be reading verses 19 through 31 in just a moment. This is our text for today. As you know, last week we began a series, a new series. We're taking a break from the Gospel of Luke. We should be back in that in November and finish that book up uh, at the end of November. Uh, But last week we began a series through the month of October uh, focused on what's called the five solas. The five solas is a reference to the five, not the five, but five principles that emerged during the Protestant Reformation when folks like Martin Luther or John Calvin sought to correct and confront and reform the errors that had been espoused in the Catholic Church regarding salvation. And so these five principles emerged from that time frame as they sought teachers like these guys and others, many others, sought to bring the church back to a right understanding of the Bible's teaching regarding salvation. And so these five solas, including sola scripturis, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, soli deo gloria, all of these Latin terms uh, are based upon this word sola, which means alone. So last week, Stephen walked through sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone how we look at to the Bible as our sole authority and sufficiency, it being the, the sufficiency of scripture for all we need for life and godliness, that the Bible is all we need, that God inspired these books for our benefit so that we might know him and that we might have a right understanding of the gospel. And so we come this morning thinking through the second sola, uh, we're going to be looking today at what's called sola fide, faith alone. Uh, as we think through faith in particular, we're, we know that, that faith is, is always, when it comes to saving faith, always connected to this doctrine that we know as justification. And so justification by faith alone, one of these principles that emerged from the Protestant Reformation, not just that it's always been there in the text, but as they sought to bring the church back to a right understanding of salvation, justification by faith alone was often considered the main principle of the Reformation. It's a principle that highlights our justification before God, how we're justified, how we're made right before a holy God. And so why was it often referred to the main principle of the Reformation? Well, it's because it gets to the very heart of the most important question that exists in the world. How can a sinner be made right with a holy God? So this doctrine of justification by faith alone gets to the heart of answering that question. It's the most important question that we'll ever answer on this planet. How can we as sinners be in the right before a holy God? Friends, it is the most pressing question of your life. It's the most important question that exists. God is holy, we are sinful, how can we be right with him? 
And so as we think through that this morning, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, thinking through the doctrine of justification by faith alone and how that answers that very question. I want to pick up in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? By by a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to spend time in your word today. We pray that as we think through this important doctrine of our faith, justification by faith alone, that you would help us not see this merely as some intellectual exercise and understanding theological truth. Father, it is far more than that. This truth, this doctrine is our very lifeline. It is our very hope. And so, Lord, would would you help us as we walk through this text today to understand it, that we might be overwhelmed by a sense of your kindness toward us. And, Father, if there are any who are present today in this room or watching through the live stream that aren't walking in faith, that they are not believing, Father, would you use this word to open their eyes and effectually draw them to yourself for their eternal joy and your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul's letter to the Romans is one of the most extensive treatments of God's work of redemption in the Bible, as far as in one place. And as many of you may know, as you you think through the book of Romans, the, the letter can be easily divided into two main parts. Chapters one through 11, dealing with uh, the uh, doctrinal exposition of what the gospel is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God's grace to save sinners, chapters one through 11 really unpacks in great detail what God has done to save the world. And in chapters 12 through 16, you have 
some practical implications that emerge from that reality. And so one through 11, here's what the gospel is. Chapters 12 through 16, here's now what that means as we live life to get, as we live, live out our lives as redeemed people in the world. Well, when you take that big picture and then you kind of hone in on Romans chapter three, what we have here, especially in the text in which I just read, is a paragraph or, or several verses that serve as one of the best summaries of God's saving work in the letter of the Romans. So Romans is a great extensive treatment of the gospel. And then now chapter three, you have kind of a, 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 a compact, full, rich summary of God's saving work as it particularly highlights this essential principle that was made popular again during the Reformation regarding the truth of salvation. So as we seek to unpack this this morning, especially with reference to justification by faith alone, we're gonna walk through four facts about God's work in justifying sinners from Romans chapter three. Four facts regarding God's work to justify sinners. The first fact, the first truth that we need to understand is what we could call a great problem. A great problem. If we're gonna understand the good news of God's salvation, then we must have a right understanding of the bad news. In fact, I would say this, that most people's misunderstanding about the gospel stems from their misunderstanding of the nature of human depravity and sin. Most people that get sin wrong get the gospel wrong. And so in order for us to understand the beauty of God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ, we must understand the great problem that exists in our hearts and in every heart in the world. And that's exactly what Paul helps us see here in Romans. In fact, if you were to read the first three chapters, the first three chapters, especially in chapter one, verse 18, all the way through chapter three, verse 20, Paul puts forward this, this great indictment against humanity. In chapter one, you see this indictment that is, he, he's exposing the Gentiles for who they truly are as, as wicked and evil and rebellious against God, that they worship the creation, not the creator. And so their, 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 their sin is called out. And then in chapter two, he says, by the way, Jews, you're not off the hook either. You too are sinful and rebellious against the creator. And then chapter three, I'm, I'm just really summarizing very broadly here. But in chapter three, his conclusion is that all, all have sinned. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what you have by the time we get to the text that we're looking at today is Paul has made this, this, this clear argument, this clear case that the entire human race is marked and stained by sin and separated from a holy and righteous God. The problem is, is stated very clearly. To quote John Piper, he said, the greatest problem facing this world is that the creator of the universe has sentenced every human being to everlasting condemnation because we have all committed treason against him by giving the allegiance of our greatest affections to other things and not to him. And that is at the heart 
of who we are. We have given our affection to other things and served other things and not the Lord. And so when we come to this text today, Paul is assuming that, that that's what he's just spent the last three chapters saying. That we have a significant problem. And so you see this phrase as we come to the, come to the text this morning, there in, in verse 21, this phrase that is repeated all throughout Romans, the righteousness of God. This righteousness of God is a regular, a regular theme throughout Paul's letters. And it's a reference to, to a couple of different things, likely. So it's certainly a reference to God's faithfulness to uphold his character, that he is righteous, that he is good, that he is pure and blameless, and he is faithful to uphold his character, but it's also a reference to his gift of righteousness that he extends to sinners. Righteousness is something God has and something God demands. Human sinfulness has created a problem, though, for us because it states that we are not righteous and that we are guilty before God who is righteous. And so when you think about the righteousness of God, that is a huge problem for us because of our sinfulness. Friends, when you think about this problem, the, the problem that we're talking about of human sinfulness is a problem that no one in this room or no one watching has escaped. It's true of each of us. Each of us have been impacted by the fall into sin. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. Therefore, we are all separated from God, unable to please him and, and stand guilty before him. You, you know, when, you come to, when you came to church this morning, came to gather with the church, let me be a little bit more theologically accurate, to gather with the church. You don't go to church. People are the church, that's another sermon. Anyway. When you come to gather with the church today, we, we come with an assortment of problems. Every single one of us in this room, if we were just to start right here, Stephen, stand up and start stating your problems. All of us have problems, all of us. We have problems at work, we have problems at school, we have problems in family, we have problems everywhere. But listen, your greatest problem is actually the fact that you, left to yourself, stand guilty before God who is holy. That is your greatest problem. Is my greatest problem. The universe were a courtroom and God were the judge, which he is. You as the defendant would stand guilty of all charges. And that is our problem. But it leads us to point number two, which we could call a gracious provision. And yes, they are all GPs, just in case you're wondering. A gracious provision even though we face this problem due to sin, due to our rebellion against the creator, God has not left us without hope. The word gospel means good news. The good news is that God, despite our rebellion against him and our human sinfulness, the good news is that God has made provision for us to be reconciled to him. And what we find here in this text in particular is several things that Paul highlights regarding this provision that God has made to reconcile sinners to him. 
Several things that we see regarding this provision. Number one, this provision is established as a gift. It's established as a gift. Look at verse 24. Paul, again, in this summary statement, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice verse 24, and are justified, we're gonna come back to that word in a moment, justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. One of the things that Paul makes clear in this text and drives home elsewhere in his writings is the inability of the law to bring salvation. Remember, God established the law. Just think about the commandments. There's a bunch of them in the Old Testament. You can go back and read all through them, right? The, the law was established as a standard of righteousness. Obey the law and live, right? Disobey, disobey and be condemned. But the Bible speaks clearly of the fact that no one has, except Jesus, no one has kept the law. No one can keep the law. No one, in fact, the Bible would say in, some, in, in one place that, that to break one is to break all the commandments. So what we have is God's standard of righteousness, our call to obey that standard, and the problem is, is that we can't. And as Paul picks up on that, and he says the, the, the law cannot bring redemption. Verse 20, if you go back to verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. I don't know that he could be any clearer. For by works of the law, no human being can be justified. Meaning, if you wanna to try to obey your way into heaven, it's not going to work. If you wanna obey the 10 commandments, if you wanna obey whatever commandment you can find in the Bible, and, and if you just keep those commandments that you'll be fine with God, he's saying that doesn't work. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's the law that exposes the problem. It's not meant to be our way to redemption. The law is, is there to say, you are a sinner. It exposes who we are. Thus, Paul moves on in his point here. Verse 23, he concluded, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. There it is, all have sinned, but sinners can be justified, declared right, made right with God. How? By grace, as a gift. Now we come to this word justification. It's an important word. It's a biblical word. It's this idea that when we are justified, it means that this is a legal declaration whereby God declares a person to be just, to be righteous, even though we're not. So this righteousness that God demands that we don't have because of sin, we're being told he gives freely as a gift of grace. But the question is, how can God do that? If God is just, if he is righteous, then he will not let sin and judgment that sin deserves just simply be passed by. He's not one that would just simply turn a blind eye from sin and say, let's just pretend that didn't happen, you're okay. That's not how salvation works. He gives 
justification as a gift of grace, but how does that, how does that transaction actually work? Because God will not simply turn a blind eye to sin and allow justice to fade away into oblivion. Well, that leads us to the second thing that we see here. It's established as a gift, this provision. And number two, it's, it's accomplished by Christ. Just follow the, the argument that he's making. We're justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift. How? Through, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And there's a lot there in that sentence, a partial sentence. Here he picks up on a second word. So we, we're talking about justification, the legal declaration that someone is right before God. Now this word redemption is justified by grace through redemption. This redemption is, is an important word. It's this idea, a word that was often used in, in, in biblical days as a reference to ransoming prisoners of war or slaves, or condemned criminals. They're, they're redeemed, they're, they're ransomed, they're, they're set free. And it's a word, an important word because Paul uses that term to speak of our salvation. He presents our salvation as redemption, thus meaning a price had to be paid for our guilt. So for us to be redeemed, and for God to be just, something had to happen for sin to be dealt with. And this is where the work of Christ comes in. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the, the, the operative, the, the agent through which this redemption is accomplished because we're told whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. A third important word in this text, propitiation. Listen, do not let people out there in the world tell you you shouldn't focus on these big terms. They're right here in the Bible. Justification, that just might require a little bit of work to, to think through that if your vocabulary isn't quite as large. We do have dictionaries and those kinds of helpful tools, right? And so it's, it's important that we understand what the Bible is saying in these terms. Justification, redemption, now this third important word, propitiation. This, it's the idea of appeasing wrath, satisfying the demand of justice. So Jesus, we're told, as a gift to bring redemption is put forward as a propitiation, as the one who would satisfy the demand of justice, God's wrath, his righteous anger against our sin. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, that's exactly what he's doing. He's dying as our substitute, as a sacrifice, being the one through which redemption is coming because he's dying as a propitiation. The wrath and justice of God is going upon him and not upon us. It's an amazing, amazing truth. He dies to take the fullness of God's judgment against our sin to satisfy that demand of justice. So your sin, my sin, is not just swept away and overlooked, it's actually judged as Jesus dies in our place. To quote another scholar, R.C. Sproul said, God never negotiates his righteousness. God will never lay aside his holiness to save us. Christ had to die 
because our sin had to be punished. So then the question becomes, how then does this gift of redemption accomplished by Christ become ours? How do we receive this gift of redemption and find ourselves justified before God? This is where we get to this main principle of the Reformation, the justification by faith alone, which leads me to the third point under this heading. And this gift is received by faith. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The problem has been established. We're all sinners before a holy God, deserving of God's righteous judgment against our sin. However, because God is gracious, because he's gracious, he made provision for sinners by sending his son into the world to live a life of perfect obedience and yet condemned to a criminal's cross in our place so that the fullness of God's justice and wrath against sin could be satisfied. But listen, this is not just something that's automatically applied. God didn't just do this and say, okay, it's automatic for the world. It's to be received by faith. This gift must be received by faith. Faith is the receptacle through which God's saving work through Christ is received and applied to us. The word faith is a term Paul would use some 142 times in his New Testament writings. And the verb believe, which is based upon the same word as faith, some 54 times. It was an important word for Paul. He understood that faith was essential for one to receive the benefits of salvation. Several truths that we see here about the necessity of faith. First of all, faith alone is exemplified by Abraham. If you were to jump over to chapter four, which we don't have time for, it's tempting, but we don't have time. Chapter four, Paul talks about that. He talks about how this understanding of the gospel is not just something these these converted monks in the 1500s came up with. <laughs> Abraham knew about this. Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17. This was a principle that has been at work from the beginning. Just look briefly at chapter four. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then you can read all throughout chapter four, Paul unpacks this more, just using Abraham as the example. He believed God. Abraham took God's word for it. When God made the promise to him and that faith was what credited to him the righteousness that God gives. This is, this is huge. Saving faith is a response to the work of Christ where we stake our hope in God's provision and promises. If you were to go on, this is what Abraham does. So I do wanna point one verse in, in a couple more verses in chapter four. In verse 18, this again, speaking of Abraham, when he believed, this is kind of unpacking what his faith looked like. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope 
that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But listen to this, verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The faith that Abraham exhibited was not just a special thing for him, it's something that will impact us. So it's exemplified by Abraham. Number two, faith alone reinforces that we aren't saved by works of the law. We've already said that, Paul's made that clear, especially in verse 20 of chapter three. Listen, if we could be saved by something we do, then there would be no need for Jesus. I know that sounds real simple, and, and, but, but <laughs> so many people, if not the vast majority of the people in the world, this is how we, how, this is kind of our default reaction is, is to try to somehow do something to earn God's favor. And if that were possible, there would have been no need for Jesus. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter two, verse 21. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could do some work to somehow justify yourself or reconcile yourself with God, then Christ died for no purpose. Friends, this is a big difference between Protestants and Catholics. I, I get this question often. What is the difference between us and our Catholic friends? Well, there are lots of things but this is one of the big ones. This is one of the main ones. Catholics will teach that justification comes by faith in Jesus Christ and good works, keeping the seven sacraments. Big difference, they'll say, oh, of course justification comes by faith in Christ. It's the and that's the problem. And the reason they come to that conclusion is because of a denial of what Stephen preached last week, scripture alone. They've added tradition and, and papal edicts and authorities throughout their history, which has allowed for the infiltration of these kinds of understandings and teachings to, to, to muddy the waters and really distract us from what true salvation is. They will say that, Catholics will say that, that justification is a process, whereas Protestants believe the Bible to teach that justification is a one-time declaration to be received through faith. faith alone, not by works of the law, not by keeping the sacraments, not by anything else that you can come up with, faith in Christ. Number three, faith alone affirms that we are saved by righteousness, but not a righteousness of our own. We are saved by righteousness, but it's not ours. If you were to, to read the book of Philippians in chapter three, Paul, again, Paul's writing to the church at Philippi here. And Paul there in chapter three, verse eight says for this, um, speaking of 
of Jesus for his sake, for Christ's sake, Paul says, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then notice what he says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, etc. So Paul understands that we are saved by righteousness, it's just not ours. It's the righteousness of Christ and when we trust in him, his righteousness is credited to our accounts. Faith alone is affirming that, it's not denying it. But number four, faith alone does not eliminate the importance of good works. While the Bible is crystal clear that good works will not make one a Christian, it is also crystal clear that good works are part of being a Christian. As Luther would say, we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. The point he's making is that true saving faith results in fruit. When we take hold of Christ by faith, we are made new, we are made a new creation, the Bible talks about. And God does that work of transformation in our lives where we seek to honor the Lord with our lives. Doesn't mean we don't sin, we still sin, we still fall short, we still wrestle in the flesh and with the world and all that's around us, but yet as a Christian, we are moving forward in faithfulness. And that is a fruit of faith, saving faith. It's not, it's, so many people get those reversed. Some people say, well, we are saved by our faithfulness. No, we are saved by Christ's faithfulness, by trusting in that. And once we trust in the faithfulness of Christ to accomplish our redemption, then he begins that work within us so that we look more and more like him as we grow in our faith. Good works are not only pleasing to the Lord, they're evidence. It's evidence of true saving faith. James gets to that in chapter two, verse 14 and following. James writes, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is just getting to the point there that, that, that faith, true saving faith, has with it fruit and faithfulness. So you see this gracious provision that God has given us. We, we've seen the problem. We've now seen the provision that God has, has brought about, established as a gift, accomplished by Christ, to be received by faith. And a couple of more observations here, truths that we see in Romans 3. After we see this gracious provision, why does God do this? Well, we need to understand that it has a God-centered purpose. I want you to look at verse 25. As Paul ends that sentence right in the middle of the verse to be received by faith, and then, then look what he says next. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Again, number two, 26. <laughs> He says it again, second time, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is important. I like what um, commentator Christopher Ash said about this point regarding this text. He said, the big danger when approaching this paragraph is that we treat it as if it were ultimately about us when it's ultimately about God. It's not centrally about me and my salvation, but rather about God and his reputation. Do you understand that? That that your salvation, though yes, it does directly impact you for sure, it is ultimately a testimony to the reputation of God to uphold his justice and righteousness while yet reconciling sinners who could never save themselves as a gift of grace. It's about the reputation of God. It's about the glory and majesty and righteousness of God. Thus the salvation we enjoy is a salvation that shines forth the glory of God in maintaining justice while at the same time graciously inviting sinners to know him. Reminds us that our salvation is not merely for our sake but to magnify the greatness and glory of God. It's a God-centered purpose. And then last, we see what we could call a global plan. In verse 27 through 29, we think about this doctrine, the doctrine doctrine of justification by faith alone. Given as a gift, accomplished by Christ. God's resolve, resolve to justify sinners and to bring redemption is, is, is a resolve that reaches to all peoples. This was not just a plan for the Gentiles. This was not just a plan that God came up with for the Jews. This is a plan for all. Human depravity and sinfulness is a universal problem and God's response and provision to the universal problem has a universal application. There is no Jewish plan and Gentile plan. So I'm gonna teach that, but it's dead wrong. God doesn't have a plan for the Jews through works of the law and through the Jewish system and then plan B, here's here's for you Gentile. That's not how it works. God's plan is to save people from every nation tribe, tongue, and language. All who have the same problem and yet are given the same savior. It's thinking about just the last week, several of us were able to go to the United Kingdom for a vision trip of sorts. Been in contact with several missionaries there for about a year and a half now. Finally able to make it over there We'll talk more about that soon. We were able to meet with six different missionaries in three cities over five days. It's a lot. But as we met with various IMB missionaries, not only was I encouraged by their intentionality to make Christ known, I was encouraged by the unity of their message. The United Kingdom is a dark place, and we could apply this to anywhere in the world. Just thinking about where we were last week. The United Kingdom is a very dark place with very little evangelical presence. 
Huge need for the gospel there. Not only that, the United Kingdom is a true multi-ethnic melting pot. You have Brits who are largely secular and lost in darkness, but then you have European immigrants, you have South Asian immigrants with Muslim, Hindu, and Sikh backgrounds. Some cities there, some 40% or more are religions of, or, or other kinds of religions from throughout the world, Muslim primarily, Hindu primarily. And there's all kinds, when you, when you talk to these missionaries, they understand there's university students, there's Muslims, there's Sikhs, there's Hindus, there's the secular Brits. They have no category, they have no space for any kind of God. And they're, they're trying to reach all of them. And as they're doing that, they're using a variety of different methods, contextualizing ministry appropriately, depending on who they're reaching. But listen, the message is the same. The message is the same. It doesn't matter if somebody is, is an immigrant from India or Pakistan, or they've been raised in London, or even St. Mary's County. The message is the same. Justification, if you are going to be made right with God, no matter who you are or where you come from, it will come through the very same message that must be declared throughout the world that God saves sinners through what he's accomplished in Christ. And you are called to believe in that. And that's how you can be right with God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, justification by faith alone is more than a slogan. It is God's very plan to save sinners. So as we think through this, this reality, it's a reminder to us that we have to be intentional in getting this message out. People are looking to all kinds of false saviors, including the false savior of good works to make them right with God. We've been given the good news and it's news we must confidently and urgently proclaim. As Christians, we must cherish the good news ourselves and, and we must rejoice in what God has done and that that ought to impact our lives in every way. But we must also do all that we can to get this news out to our neighbors and to the nations so that sinners can find hope and joy in Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone, the main principle of the Reformation, because it's the very gospel that saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very truth, a truth, Lord, that shows us our need, shows us the great problem that exists in this world, Lord, that we are all sinners and deserving of your righteous judgment because you are pure and holy and righteous you are just, and Father, there's not a one of us that can stand before you on our own with our own merits or good works to, to, that, that would grant, that, that would lead you to grant favor to us. But Father, we're so thankful that in your kindness and grace that you sent forth your son to be the one who would accomplish our redemption through becoming a sacrifice on the cross in our place as Jesus took upon himself the full justice and wrath against our sin. Father, I pray that that truth would never leave our hearts or minds. Lord, that it would be something that would 
overwhelm us with joy each and every day that we live. Lord, as Christians in this room, Lord, I pray that this, this truth would, even this morning, just energize us with just a contagious joy that we have been redeemed and it's not because of our own doing, but it's because of your kindness and your gift of grace through Christ. Father, it may be that there are some here today and watching, or maybe even Lord, some, someone that may hear this message weeks later that understand for the first time that they are a guilty sinner before you. And that if they were to die today, they would perish because they have nothing. They have no legal claim. They stand guilty. But Father, you've also shown how you have provided a gracious savior. And Lord, my prayer even now would be that you would open their eyes to that fact and that you would give them faith to receive Christ, to put their hope in him that their lives may be transformed forever. Father, we know that you are good and you do that and you do that throughout the world. Would you do that today, we pray. Thank you again, Lord, for this text and for this truth. May it continue to transform us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.